If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about retail. We're talking about why games sell in retail or don't. Why they don't sell in retail. Why some games sit on the shelf for two minutes and why some games sit on the shelf for two years. And we're talking to AJ Brandon, the storefront manager of Board Game Bliss. AJ, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Yeah, man. Really excited for you to be here. This is something I haven't had a chance to dive into. 200 plus episodes at this point and never really talked about retail in any kind of you know grand manner, any kind of depth. And so really pumped to get your ideas on why games sell, what makes some games stand out in the marketplace of so many games. So, it's so much noise right now with so many games coming out every single year. And I, I'm just pumped to learn what's selling. Why do you think it sells? What can game designers do? What can publishers do? All these things to stand out. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. So I've uh, always been playing board games my entire life. My whole family have been board gamers. You know, I, obviously I grew up on, you know, Monopoly and Risk and Trivial Pursuit and that type of thing. Um, but my parents were very uh, sort of inviting to the hobby games as I started introducing those to them, you know, in early high school. My gateway game was Descent, coming right off of Risk, and then I hit Twat Imperium, and I never looked back. And uh, then I never thought I could make a job out of this. I kind of jumped around from random thing to random thing a lot. And from, you know, uh, all these random jobs, I never really found what I was looking for. And then my favorite board game store, Board Game Bliss, uh, posted that they were hiring. So that was kind of a dream come true. And I've been working there since 2016. Very cool. And then you're also a game designer. So not only are you working in retail and helping, you know, to sell games, but you're also designing games, right? Yeah. So I've been doing that pretty much the, as long as I've been playing games. My first ever game was uh, using the economy from Monopoly to buy new units with special abilities and stuff in Risk. And so I've always been doing that. Obviously, I've gotten better since uh, age eight, smashing together Monopoly and Risk. Um, it's currently unpublished, but I've been designing much more actively since uh, around the same time that I got the job. I got really into the industry uh, in the first year proto TO, just a couple months before I got my job. Very cool. And I just want to clarify, did you say Twilight Imperium 3 was one of your gateway games? Yeah. So so I, I literally, I, I played a lot of Risk. That was my favorite game out of all the classics. And then a friend of mine showed me Descent. And then I went to a summer camp and I was talking about how Descent was the best game ever and it would blow your mind. And then there's a person who's an, you know, an actual hobbyist gamer there. And he was like, no, no, you got to play Twilight Imperium 3. That's a real game. And, you know, at the time I was like, 12 years old, 13 years old. And, uh, 
And just on his word, I went and bought TI3 and I couldn't understand the rule book, waited uh, a year or two. And then I told one of my friends about how great this game was apparently. So we read the rule book together. We, we made it through and then we convinced four of our friends to play with us. And the first game took us 34 hours total to play through, but we, we did it. And then we just got addicted and played it constantly. Well, that's amazing. I talked to so many people, you know, and it's it's the typical games. You know, it's like, oh, I got in with Catan or Ticket to Ride or Sushi Go or maybe Dungeons and Dragons. Not you, sir. No, no. Twilight <laughs> Imperium 3, 34 hours. I was like, yep, I'm going to play games forever. It's like, well, all right, yeah, come on in. The water's good. fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. Well, let's get into the topic. Let's talk about why games sell in retail and, and why some don't. Uh, let's get a good little working definition. As we're talking about retail, what does that mean exactly? Tell me from your perspective, what exactly is retail? And then that'll kind of frame what we're talking about. So there are two main branches. Obviously, we live in a digital age. And so a lot of the sales do come from online. I would say, actually, we, we, we do have the storefront, but we also have our online store. And it started with the online store. And I was sort of brought on when we took the storefront side more seriously. And the online store is about 80% of our sales, I would say. And designing something for a digital storefront versus a physical retail front um, can actually have quite a bit of overlap, but both are really important to actually get your game sold, right? So just in terms of, of definitions, like retail can be digital, it can be physical, it's just any avenue that you can use to sell your game. And that comes down to whether it's a friendly local game store, whether it's you know buying on Amazon, you need to prepare for what your game looks like as a product to the end consumer. Absolutely. And just for reference, we're not really talking about Kickstarter in this episode. I mean, right. selling on Kickstarter is, I mean, technically retail, but it's very, very different. The market is different. The things that make you stand out are very, very different than what makes you stand out at a friendly local game store. Uh, when it comes to Amazon, is that different as well? Is that also part of this context or are there, there are things about Amazon that make it distinctly different from these other things? So Amazon is a weird beast. You, you know, there's so, there's a lot of problem with uh, fake copies of games getting put up and stuff like that. And obviously, I'm, you know, I'm not a Amazon retailer. So take this with a grain of salt and, and bias and all that sort of thing. But from my perspective, Amazon and uh, ordering online from us, it looks very similar to the end consumer. They both have reviews. They both have a quick paragraph blurb that's probably copy and pasted from the publisher or from BGG. Uh, you you have uh, you know price that you're going to quickly compare with other online retailers. So to the end consumer, it looks pretty similar, even if on the back end for retailers and publishers, it looks quite a bit different. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And now, why is this important? Why is it important for both game designers to be thinking about this, and then also game publishers to be thinking about retail and what sells? So the big thing is. If you make a great game, but it doesn't sell, then no one gets to experience it, right? And like, it sounds so obvious when I say it like that, but a lot of people, including publishers, are focused on just making the game great, which is obviously really important, and you should do that. Um, but if you don't market yourself well, if you don't prepare your game as a product for retail, then you're kind of wasting your time in a lot of ways. You know, who cares if you spent years tuning this game perfectly if you don't make something that connects with your audience and actually gets purchased by consumers, right? 
Yeah, exactly. If, if you have the greatest game in the world, but no one knows about it, and it doesn't show up in any stores, and no one can buy it, no one can experience it, then you technically don't have the greatest game in the world because no one can enjoy it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just something very important, obviously, for publishers to be aware of because this is the money. This is the dollars and cents of you know having a publishing company. If you're going to do that, then obviously you need to make a profit to pay your bills. But then from a designer standpoint, it's just being aware of what works in the market because more than likely a publisher that's why they're going to sign your game or not is if they think it can sell in the marketplace, like why else would they want your game? Like they want to make money, you know? And so even if you have a great game, if they don't think it's going to sell, then it doesn't matter. And you could have a terrible game. Like you could have the worst game of all time, but if it has a market and they think it can sell and they can make a lot of money, then that that's the thing, right? I mean, think about how many games are on the market right now that, that I personally think are hot garbage. I think they're trash. <laughs> I think they're not fun at all. Who are, who's this game for? It's got mechanisms from two decades ago, whatever, but it sold a million copies, right? And so it's just something to, to be aware of and just the reality of it from a designer standpoint and then also from a publishing standpoint. And I want to kind of break up this conversation into, the, into those two sides and start off by talking as a designer what to think about, and then we'll move into kind of the bigger conversation, which is from a publishing standpoint, because there's so much more a publisher can control than a designer if you're just licensing your games. And so let's start off right there. As a designer, what should I be thinking about when it comes to retail? You know, as it relates to my design process, as it relates to pitching to publishers, as it relates to kind of the customer, or not the customer, the, the gameplay experience that would turn into a customer experience. Give me your thoughts. So the biggest thing is um, making a game that has really good on-ramping and making a game that uh, gets played, essentially. That's the biggest thing. So I'm going to touch a little bit on other things. I'm going to jump back over to this. The, the non-on-ramping and quick-to-play things I can talk about are things like moment-first design. I know Eric Lang has uh, spoken about this quite a bit. And that's where you design a game such that big, exciting moments are going to happen. And that way, when someone's talking to their friend about the game, they say, oh man, come check out this game. And they pull the game off the shelf and they have something to talk about. Because guess what? There's different people who are going to be selling your game in retail. Sometimes it's going to be the employee. Sometimes it's going to be the friend who walked into the store with them, who's played a game that they haven't. And if you can give them the language to convince someone that the game is good, you might just create another sale for your game. You know, when you play Blood Rage and there's that moment where someone slams down the Hydra, you're like, how on earth am I going to beat this thing? It's this giant, scary monster. But then someone plays the Loki card and reverses everything. You know, those are the big flashy moments where someone's going to remember that. And if you can design your game such that there's going to be these big, exciting moments that come up, then you're going to make it easier for people to, to sell your game. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone trying to convince their friend a game is fun and they just aren't able to say anything that sounds appealing because it's it's a skill like anything else, really, being able to articulate what was fun about the game. Typically, what they'll do is they'll talk about the theme because most the average gamer, you know, the average person playing a board game is not someone who understands mechanics. They're not going to be able to say, oh, this is a worker placement with a engine building elements and has a small deck building. They, they don't know those words, right? It's, it's not part of their vocabulary. But if they can say, well, when the Viking comes down and he summons this cool monster and then this happens, they can attach onto the theme much more easily and sell that aspect of the game 
to the person. And then at that point, the person's hopefully hooked onto the game and they're interested. And then that gives, you know, possibly the employee there the opportunity to, to build on it. And that sort of also dovetails into talking about hooks, which, uh, you know, been gone over at length. So I'll just quickly define it. A hook is something that will make your game stand out from the crowd. So in cash and guns, the hook is you get to play with the foam pistols. So if someone pulls the game off the shelf, what's the thing they talk about? They talk about, oh yeah, you get these foam guns and you're pointing them at each other and you get to shoot each other. That's like the big, exciting, cool, fun thing that now they get to tell all their friends about. And it's immediately apparent when you see the game pulled out what the fun thing is and it gets people excited about it. I've brought over that game to people's houses who, you know, they're like, oh, I, I don't play board games. And as soon as I lift off the box lid and they see those pistols, they reach in, they grab the pistol. They're like, oh, yeah, like <laughs> this is my kind of board game, you know. Um, so that's that's sort of the the high level stuff that you can take a look at as a, as a designer. But I think the the thing that's really in your control is making the game more um, playable, for want of a better term. So essentially, if someone's already bought your game, you might think, great, I've made the sale. I, what more do I want from them? But that's the beginning of the marketing for this, right? Because if someone owns a board game, what do they, generally speaking, have to do if they want to play it? They have to play it with friends. So if you have a game that someone keeps pulling it week after week, playing with all their different friends, well, all of a sudden, you just got 30 more people to play the game, 30 more potential customers. If they had a good time, they might go out and buy it. And then guess what? They play it with their friends. So if you can make a game that's very demo friendly, not only will it get played in board game cafes and in the demo library of your local board game store, but it gets, if it gets pulled off of the shelf of the person who owns the game, that's free marketing right there. And that's why you see a lot of the really light easy to get into games really becoming hits because they get played more often they get they get more attention and it just has a positive feedback loop where the more it gets played the more other people are going to buy it and the more it gets played with them you know it keeps going so the ways that you can design for that um i'll talk about demos specifically before i sort of go into on-ramping i think because on-ramping is its whole other thing uh, for making a game that's demo-friendly, you want it to have really fast setup and teardown. And obviously, that's just always going to be good. But teardown is something that people don't often think about. Usually, setup is, but not necessarily teardown. But if you think you want your game to get played in board game cafes and demo sections, which you do, because again, it's just free marketing. Why wouldn't you want that? Then you need to have a game that can be set uh, that can be put back easily. If, I'm, if I have the choice between teaching someone Star Realms, which is a deck builder where you just shuffle almost all the cards back into the uh, deck and put on the shelf, versus teaching someone Clank, where I have to separate all the cards into different categories, and I've got all these extra tokens to put in different places, it becomes a much harder sell to me as the person who's demoing the game. You want to make it as easy as possible for the person that's demoing your game, whether it's someone in a store or someone at their house, to get out the game and start playing it. The term is uh, the shape a game takes. You want the shape of the game to fit nicely into someone's life. The, the more obtuse the shape, 
the more difficult it is for someone to actually get into the game and play it. Gloomhaven's a masterpiece. Everybody knows that who's played it. But if you're trying to take a look at how to make that game more um, more demo friendly, you know, if you look at Jaws of the Line, that's a great example. You know, instead of having all these interlocking pieces, you ha- you simply have a, a flip sheet. So that removes uh, setup and that removes teardown. You just flip to the part in the book where it has the pre-built board. That's really, really appealing to a lot of people. And a lot of people are going to get introduced to Gloomhaven because of making it easier for you in that way. Um, and obviously having too many pieces can make it very fiddly to set up and all that sort of thing. Um, having a fast teach is obviously something that's good. And kind of what I said before is having the hook up front. So like I said, as soon as you open the box for caching guns, you see the hook. Everybody sees the cool, fun guns that they get to play with. And if you can front load the cool, fun, exciting thing about your game that other games don't have, then that'll get people more invested and it'll get them into the game more quickly. And then there's honor amping, which is a huge, huge topic, but I'll try and not ramble too much here. So honor amping is just how long does it take to get a brand new player into your game and actually playing it? And a great example of seeing how this is done well is just basically any video game. You know, how many video games require you to read a rule book before you play them? Some do, and they see a lot less play. Games on your phone, I think the average is they have 30 seconds to a minute. That's what designers are planning for to catch the attention of the players and get them in the game and get them having fun. And you don't have to be quite that extreme with board games. Board games uh, have a little bit more buy-in from their users typically. But if you think about like Magic the Gathering, like that has a 250 page rulebook. Most professional Magic players have not read that rulebook. Most judges haven't read that rulebook cover to cover. Like think about how insane that is. But it's, and if you buy an introductory product for Magic the Gathering, does it come with the 250 page rulebook? No, it comes with a double-sided sheet that gives you the basic flow and structure of the game because you don't need to know everything off the bat. So one way to sort of uh, get people into the game more quickly is to only show them rules as they need them. In uh, Catacombs, which is like a dexterity dungeon crawl game, it's basically Crokinole mixed with Descent. It's, it's a great game. I, I'm a really big fan of it. But it's rulebook uh, I have the third edition one and it's like 30 pages long and I have convinced people to buy that game because it's great. And they come back to me and they're like, that rule book is so long. Like I, I just got intimidated. I didn't bother getting to it. And I'm like, just bring it in, just bring it to the store. This has literally happened to me. And they bring it in and within one minute they are playing the game. So you don't, you didn't need to teach them all 30 pages of rules in order to get them playing the game. You could have just, you know, had the bare minimum that they need to start playing and teach them rules as they go on. Uh, my, my two key examples of this would be Fog of Love and Kingdom Death Monster, which both have built-in tutorials. So as you play the game, it teaches itself to you. And Fog of Love, they weave in uh, decks of, of explanation cards. So they teach you just a little bit as you go. In fact, on the rule book, it says, don't bother reading this. You don't need to just start playing. And in KDM, which is a massive, massive complicated game, it's comparable to, to Gloomhaven uh, complexity, it starts off very simple. 
And there's a few keyword abilities that you can read through. And as you sort of go through them, you start to understand the game, but it doesn't teach you every keyword up front. It says, you know what, here's the glossary, check it as you need it. Things will come up eventually. But what it teaches you is the bare minimum you need to get started and start having fun right away. And I wish more games would do that. In terms of uh, other things you can do, you can look at um, heuristics. So this is a, a term coined by Richard Garfield. And basically a heuristic is like a, a mental shorthand, right? So it's like when you want a player to be able to figure out what to do, do you want them to have to think through every possible permutation or just get sort of a rough idea, you know? And um, uh, A Feast for Odin it has something like 60 choices right off the bat. But to an experienced gamer, they'll look at it and say, well, these 20 choices literally don't apply at all right now. And so you actually only have 40 choices. And from those 40, you can say, well, 20 of these are obviously bad. So now I really only have 20 choices. And, you know, I'm, those are rough numbers, but you sort of get the idea there. And if you can design a game that has strong heuristics, it'll get people into the game more quickly. Um, an example of this done poorly as well would be uh, Black Angel. Like that game has so many perverse ways of understanding how things flow. It takes a while to get into it if you're not an experienced gamer. Whereas if you look at like the classic example of Catan, it's like, yeah, a road needs brick and wood. Okay, brick and wood are components that would build a road. That kind of makes sense to me. And what do, what do I need for a settlement? Well, they would need some livestock. So I need to have some sheep and they're going to need some bread, so they're going to need wheat. And those are ways to sort of bake into your design, whether it's thematic or mechanic, uh, a way that people can sort of understand your game more clearly up front. Another thing is knowing where your complexity is. So games can be complex in terms of comprehension, right? We've all read a card that says, that has like a paragraph of rules text, and you read the whole thing and you're like, wait, I have to read that again. I don't, I don't really know what that means. Uh, then there's board state complexity where it's like, okay, you explain the rules. I get them. But I'm looking at hundreds of different, you know, permutations. I'm playing Twilight Imperium and there's so many different abilities and there's so many different uh, unit types and everything. You just get a little overwhelmed. And then there's strategic complexity. And the first two, I think, are easy enough to understand how to like as a designer, what you can do to fix them. But strategic complexity is the tricky one that I see a lot of designers not follow. My favorite example of this is uh, Santorini. So in Santorini, it's I think it's a fabulous game. It's a fabulous demo game in, in a lot of ways. But the one thing that I find it is always a problem with it is this, the early turns, players who are new to the game, who haven't played lots of abstract strategies, have a bit of trouble knowing what a good first turn looks like. So they'll start the board blankly for a few minutes and then randomly move their person and place their first tile. And I think that the game would do a lot better if those first few turns had a bit more clear of a goal. So there's a, a game called Feria, and um, I'm not going to talk much about Feria. I have a lot to say, but I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but one thing it does really well is there's these nodes that generate a resource every round. So the game is very complex and very 
difficult to play in a lot of different ways because of the um, the nature of the game. But on your first turn, if you understood the rules of how to play, you have an immediate goal because just a few spaces away from your starting tile, there's a node that generates resources, Feria. The name of the game is called Feria, and if you look at the cards in your hand, they cost you Feria. So immediately, the game gave you a heuristic, an immediate short-term goal. Cool, I need this resource. There's a resource right here. I can walk towards it. I haven't played Scythe, but I've heard that it has a, um, a reference that sort of gives you these sort of short-term goals at, in your first few turns if you're new to the game. Like, try to do this. Try to do this. And that's a little heavy-handed, but better than nothing. But if you can make it so that the players don't even realize that you're doing this, like in the fairy example, that's that's where the money is. That's where your game is really going to shine. And the last thing I'll say as, as a another way to get... This is actually goes to helping the uh, the person teaching the game to teach it. Reference cards are great, obviously, but if you design the reference card properly, you can basically curate how the game gets taught. So I see people teaching games all the time, and I'm not trying to be mean. Most people suck at it. It's a really hard skill. It's really, really hard, but... Most people will start in the wrong places. They'll just teach rules at random. What you need to do is you need to teach the broad level context, like who am I and then what am I doing? And once you sort of have the broad level context, then you can say, all right, now here's your goal. Now, okay, I know who I am. I know what I'm doing and I know what my goal is. Then you can start to layer on round structure and individual rules and things like that. But you really need to have that context first. And if you design a reference card properly, you can guide the person teaching the game. Like, just look at the first thing on the reference card, and now I'm going to explain it. And that helps players to look back later on and remember the flow of the game. An example of this done poorly and almost perfectly is Coup. So in Coup, there's a reference card, and there's um, three actions that everyone can take. And it walks you through those. First, you can take a coin. Cool. You can take two coins cool, why would I just do that? And then you can explain, well, this one character can stop it. Okay, we'll get to that later. And then, you know, I'm not going to go through every single one on the list, but they, for instance, have the character that blocks stealing before the character who steals. So you're like, this character can block stealing. And immediately players are like, huh? What's stealing? And you're like, okay, now I'll now I'll teach that. But if they taught the character that blocks stealing, or the character that steals first, then it would make more sense. And there's a card that blocks assassination and that card comes away at the end. Why not put it right after the character that assassinates? So there's ways to structure it so that we can teach the games in the most uh, easily understood way. And I think reference cards built properly can be a really good guiding tool. So I'm sorry. I know that's a, that's a ton of information to dump, to dump on you, but uh, I had a lot to say about uh, how to make a good game with good on-ramping. Yeah, definitely. And it's something for designers just to be aware of. I mean, that's a lot to unpack. And so I've just got several different things I was writing down that I want to note uh, and, and maybe get some back and forth dialogue about. One, uh, I want to say that Eon's End also has a really good tutorial uh, for anybody who, who hasn't played that. That's one to check out to kind of see how a tutorial can can be done for a game that has a lot going on. And that one, you know, it tells you, all right, pick up this deck, take the top two cards. And like the way the decks are all shuffled, like everything's already good to go. You can just open the box and it kind of carries you through 
the first playthrough without you having to do much except kind of learn as you go. And I think learn as you go is a really appealing way for a game to, to be taught uh, because it's going to get played more often than having to sit there and learn a 20 something page rule book. And then, and now we get to play, you know, an hour later. And uh, another thing about magic that's so amazing is I don't know anyone who learned how to play it from the book, right? Like everyone <laughs> I know. And me personally, we all learned it from a friend. Like someone sat, sat us down and said, okay, here's a deck you can use. This is what this deck is really good at. And uh, here's how you play. And here's how you use lands. And here's how you do this and that. And you just learn it as you play it. And it, it just lends itself to that. Even though it's got a massive 200 plus page rule book, you don't have to learn it. You just have to learn a little bit at a time. And whenever there's a, a question, then you look it up online. You don't go to the rule book. You just Google it. Right? And you see what the rules are. And I, I think that's just another interesting case study. Absolutely. But going back to, as a designer, what to be thinking about as you're designing a game, what's going to be good in the marketplace. And it's super important to understand who your target customer is. Who is the target gamer for your game? And then just simplify that all the way down. You know, Einstein said, anything you can't explain simply, you do not understand. And so what what can you just like boil your game all the way down to as far as basically a one to two sentence pitch? And then just think on that. Okay, how am I going to do this? You know, and for your game. Uh, and typically it's in story mode. It's not, oh, this is a worker play, placement game for two to four players and this, that. Okay, that, that doesn't necessarily sell games. The excitement level, the, the, the story of it, the potential, uh, especially when it comes to the theme, that has a tendency to sell more games. And so just being aware of who your customer is or your end gamer and really like personalize that person. I, I, we were talking, AJ, before the show about how way back when, when I was first starting this podcast, I created a customer avatar for my ideal listener. And his name was Steve and he was 31 years old and he had two kids and he had a 45 minute drive to work each way every single day. And so every time I had a decision I needed to make for the, the podcast, I would think about Steve. And all right, all right, what, what would Steve want? What would best serve Steve in this situation? What would help Steve out? You know, in my, my fake customer, my fake listener, you know, he was an unpublished designer, but he really wanted to publish games and he didn't have a lot of time to work on them. And because he had kids and a, a family and a job, you know, all these things going on. And so a lot of decisions I make for the show are with Steve in mind. And so I think the same thing can be said for designing a game is, all right, so Susan is your target gamer. And so what does she want? Well, she wants a game that's 30 minutes or less and it needs to have these ideas, these themes, whatever it is. And then you can think, all right, what, what does Susan want? And then that helps you make really good choices as a designer. And so just some, some things to think about from a retail side, what are your thoughts on those things? Is it, Tell me about like demographics. Tell me about things to be thinking about as a game designer when it comes to customers. I mean, you're, you're on the front lines seeing exactly what people are buying on a daily basis, on a yearly basis. So what should I be thinking about as a designer when it comes to this target uh, audience, these target markets, target demographics? That's a that's a fabulous question. And I think that, like, like I said to you before the show, that your way of thinking about it is really clever. I think that it's very important to be able to imagine who your target audience is. A mistake I see a lot of is play or uh, is designers, excuse me. Designers are saying like my game's for everyone or you know that's sort of a, a mentality. I was talking to one person and they had a game that sort of felt um, it felt like it was making a lot of compromises. Like some aspects of the game were really really it was like a tank game and it was really like historically accurate and very gr like rules gritty, you know. And some aspects of it were like, oh, let's just check some dice and see what happens. 
And I, I was like, your game kind of feels like it's at odds with itself. You know, the, the lighter aspect of it feels like it's a kid's game or a family weight game. And the rules grit feels like it's there for like war gamers and stuff like that. And so I said, you know, I think you need to sort of define your audience. And at the time they had said to me that they wanted everyone to play their game. But if you make a game for everyone, you're, you're kind of making a game for no one because you know, the, the rules grit is going to be very unappealing to the family weight audience and the light goofy, I don't mean to be, you know, uh, dismissive or anything, but like the lighter elements of the game are not going to appeal to hardcore war gamers, you know? Um, and so I think that it does help to think of them specifically, like you had said, uh, I hadn't thought of that before this conversation, but it is very interesting to me. The way that I sort of look at it is much broader demographics. So um, there's a lot of different lenses you can use to look at player profiles, but the ones that I sort of look at from the from the direct like purchasing my game aspect is more based on buying habits. So you have sort of the mass market gamers, the term that I like to use, and that's like they might own zero games. They might say like, oh, yeah, I quite like board games. And they have zero games or, you know, less than five, something like that. And, you know, it may even be more than that, but it's like that sort of type of mentality where it's like, wow, you want to see my collection? I've got a lot of games. I've got all eight versions of Monopoly and that type of thing, right? So I'm, I'm talking more like uh, of hobbyist games, how many of those they own. And so for the mass market gamer, when you're designing for them, you need to make sure that the on-ramping stuff that I mentioned before is like really really smooth the number one thing you have to do is make sure that if a mass market gamer sits down and plays your rule book without the help of someone else because often they'll be buying their game at target or walmart or amazon and they won't have the help of an of a game store employee you have to make sure that they can actually learn how to play the game and get playing it immediately and get the fun immediately and get the strategy immediately it has to be so clean it has to be so smooth I think uh, Prospero Hall is doing a really good job of, uh, of showing what can be done in this design space right now. Um, but the other thing is you have to consider price point. So if you're like, I'm not expecting you to know to the dollar how much your game is going to cost to manufacture. But if your game comes with 30 custom dice and you expect it to be a mass market game, that's just not realistic. Because the people who are going to be buying a game at Target are probably, you know, uh, Mothers buying games for their kids or, you know, oh, I know my friend likes Battlestar Galactica. I'm going to buy this Battlestar Galactica themed board game that I see here for 30 bucks. So often it's going to be gifts or it's going to be impulse purchases from people who have never seen the thing before. And so you have to be very aware of the price point. I obviously some games will break that mold. There's always an exception to every rule I'm going to say. You know, these are rules of thumb, not not hard and fast. Uh, but I would say you're looking about 20 to 40 bucks is what I would be hoping that my game would be priced at. The other thing is it really has to uh, have an engaging theme or it has to be immediately familiar. So if they look at the back of the box and, the, and they think to themselves, oh, there's 2D6 here and there's a board with tracks. This kind of reminds me of Monopoly. Like, I feel like I get this. They can buy it. Even if it's not like Monopoly, it's going to feel similar to the types of games that they know. And that's that's going to help them a lot. And 
the other thing is is having just an appealing theme. It doesn't have to be brand IP. Obviously, most designers don't have access to brand IP, but uh, exploding kittens would be a great example. You know, you're you're just walking through the shelves and you look at the front cover and you're like, exploding kittens. What a weird theme. That's so weird and fun and silly. That's going to appeal to me. And those things the designer does have control over, as opposed to the um, as opposed to the publisher. I mean, the publisher might just reject uh, a game that you're working on, but what I'm saying is you might be wasting your time if you are uh, designing a game that doesn't fit comfortably within that mold for the mass market. The second one would be what I call casual gamers. So uh, what I mean by that is more, again, talking about buying habits. What I think of as casual gamers is when they buy a game, they play it. They play it a lot. They like it a lot, you know? You'll see this a lot with people who got into the hobby from like Catan or Dominion or one of those games. The the people who came into the hobby from one of those games is just going to play the heck out of them. And then once a new game store catches their attention, they're going to pick that one up and they're going to play the heck out of that one. Uh, or they'll, they might think to themselves like, this really isn't scratching the itch and they might not, but they're definitely going to play each game that they buy, you know, at least once to, to try. And if they hate it, maybe they won't touch anymore. But these ones uh, are going to be often a bit more complex or a bit more mechanically out there than the mass market gamers. Uh, And with those ones, you still want something that has good on-ramping, but it's much less important because they're going to be willing to sit through it. You know, on-ramping is just always important. Um, And you're going to want to design something that gets that can survive the hundred plays that's going to be put through. It doesn't have to be 100% perfectly balanced. You know, it doesn't have to be any of that, but it has to be fun after a hundred plays. And then there's the hardcore audience. Now these are the people who go on BGG and, you know, might go on there daily. These are the people who have, you know, 50 plus board games and they, you know, oftentimes play their games on average, like, or maybe a median is more fair to say a median number of plays would be like zero to three, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's sad to say, but like, because they're so into the hobby, they see all these amazing games. This is the golden age of board games. Right. And so they buy a lot of games and you know what? We don't have time to play all of them, but also more importantly, let's go back to my on ramping again. If they have, 50 games on their shelf that they haven't played before, but they could just go back to the comfort zone of playing a game that they already know how to play. And it's Saturday night. And this is the one day a week they have off. You know, we're thinking back to our demographics. We're thinking back to the shape of a game. They're more likely to go with something that's quick and easy to learn or something that they've already played before. Now that's not always going to be the case, obviously. And I, again, I am making generalizations here, but that's kind of the name of the game here, because you're not designing for the one exception, you're designing for the 99 that fit the mold. And so when designed for those ones, the big thing, as well as on-ramping, because again, on-ramping is just so important. I'm sorry I never shut up about it, but it's never enough of a design consideration, I don't think, at least not for my tastes. Um, but when you're designed for them, the number one thing is novelty. What does your game have that every other game doesn't have? Because guess what? They've played every other game or they own every other game at least. So when when a new thing comes to the table, it has to be like, oh, wow, that concept is really cool. And with this demographic specifically, now is when you 
you're looking at a niche enough audience that you can sort of split into the different, you know, subcategories and things. So you can say, listen, I am making a game that appeals to war gamers. So I am able to get away with having a long rulebook. I'm able to get away with it being, you know, uh, having an unappealing, um, or I shouldn't say unappealing, but a uh, more niche theme, you know, things like that. And so you can get away with more at the hardcore level, but you have to be bringing something really special. That's like my number one concern is what am I bringing that's really going to make someone who's already read about a thousand other board games think that game sounds cool. So I hope that answers your question, Um, but there's a lot to say on this. Yeah, no doubt. And so another thing I think is super valuable, super vital for designers to realize and publishers for that matter, is that board game geek is not the retail market. It's it's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of mm-hmm. the actual board game market of, of people going in and buying games. I mean, if you go to if you go to BGG, you would think that Gloomhaven is the number one game in the world. <laughs> and it's it's not. It's the number one game on Board Game Geek. And that's a very different thing because the truth is Exploding Kittens has sold way more copies than Gloomhaven. Pie Face, for crying out loud, which is literally just turn a crank and then somebody's going to get hit in the face with a pie. It's not even really a game. It's an activity, but whatever. Has sold tens of millions of copies. And so, you know, it it just, you got to be aware of that. You know, I've, I've heard retailers talk about how the number one games that sell in their stores are things like Sushi Go and code names and these like very basic, very simple party style games, games that are easy to buy, especially small games you can put up there at the register. There are these like impulse purchases because they're 10 bucks or 15 bucks. Like those are things that sell really, really well. And so just be aware. It's kind of like going on Twitter and thinking it's representative of the world or of what people believe or what the people think. It's not. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of percent of people that even, you know, tweet. And it's a tiny fraction of percentage of, of people on Board Game Geek. So don't let that be your reality. Now, if you're designing games that are specifically for Board Game Geek, or specifically for the Kickstarter market, which is another market just to be aware of, has very specific desires and, and you know, things that uh, they'll pay a lot of money for, Absolutely. you know, that, then go for it, right? If you're designing a really heavy Euro game or something that appeals to that BGG market, then yeah, lean into that. But if you're just designing, you know, normal games, family games, games that kind of appeal to a, a more broad audience than what BGG is going to appreciate, then don't let BGG be the thing that you kind of get your value out of. Like, don't go on Board Game Geek if you've got a, a light game and then get upset when people rate, you know, rate it a two out of 10. It's, well, that's, it's not the game for them. And so just being aware of that as a designer and a publisher. Uh, speaking of publishing, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk, actually a whole lot of it. Uh, let's talk <laughs> about, from a publisher standpoint, what should a business be thinking about when it comes to retail? You know, let's talk about box art, box size, MSRP, like all these different things. Give me your, your main things to be aware of as a publisher to actually have your games sell and not just sit on store shelves. Man, I have so much to say about this. I'll try and keep it short. Cause I know I've been rambling a little bit. So um, the short and simple things that a publisher be, should be considering uh, the number one thing is perceived value. The absolute number one thing of any hobby board game is perceived value. So if a customer walks in the store, they pick up a game off the shelf and they see the price tag, they should immediately think either, huh, not bad. Or they should think, wow, really? <laughs> those are the two responses you want when they read that price tag. you know. Um, and those come down to a couple different things. One, box size. The bigger the box, the more perceived value. Uh, two, 
weight. The more weight, the more perceived value. Three, after they open the box, if it if it looks like it's empty, negative perceived value. And those are the three main things. But it also comes down to other things. So, for instance, um, if the game comes with minis, huge increase in perceived value. And uh, people are willing to pay for that. You know, if uh, if if people if, if people, especially in the hardcore demographic, feel like a game is expensive but a good deal, they will buy it. That's why you see so many like multi hundred dollar costing Kickstarters get funded for these niche games that come with million boxes of components and hundreds of thousands of miniatures. It feels like sometimes um, because the perceived value is very high. Like, and you know what? the The actual value that you get is is often quite good from from some of those kickstarters sometimes it's definitely worth waiting to retail and you know sometimes you get a very good deal it's a case-by-case basis honestly um but if i was designing a game and i and i felt like the components were more expensive for some reason than another like if they had a lot of custom dice that's an area i'd be looking to trim if i could um custom dice do not add perceived value to a product those are expected you know but if someone looks at the back of a box and they see all these minis and all this cool stuff that it looks like it comes with and it feels kind of hefty, they'll think it's a good deal. Uh, just to give a couple random examples, you know, if someone picked up a copy of Blood Rage they th- and, and, you, and they don't know much about the actual price and you ask them, they will actually say that their guess of how much it would cost is higher because they look at the back of the box, they see all these minis it comes with, they feel it and it's hefty and the box is quite large. I mean, in the era of Kickstarter, maybe not that large, but it's still, it, it's quite big, all things considered, comparatively to the average board game. Um, and so often they'll guess like, uh, I'm talking Canadian dollars here, but they would guess, you know, around 90 bucks. And it retails at our store last I checked for 75. But then you look at something like, um, what's a great example? Burgle Bros. Burgle Bros is a great example. So that one is from a small publisher and it's a very, very small box. And it's heavy. It is heavy. So that adds to the perceived value. But it's a very small box. And people will always guess it's like, I don't know, 25 or 30 Canadian dollars. And we sold it for like 45, 50, something in that range. And the thing is, is if I put those same components in a, in a pandemic-sized box with like the standard uh, sort of amount of like uh, in tray insert and stuff like that, no one would think twice about it, but it's because uh, it it is so compact and so efficient, which is arguably really good for the end customer. Like we all say that we are running out of shelf space. Don't we want smaller games? But psychologically, it feels like you're not getting a good deal. Some of the best examples of doing this properly would be um, the, the pandemic expansion, uh, or sorry, the pandemic standalone alternate version, uh, Reign of Cthulhu. That one has the best tray insert I've ever seen. For every uh, main character mini, there's like a separate slot for it, you know, not just a random baggie. And so it looks like the whole thing is nice and full. And if that tray wasn't there, you'd open the box and it might feel kind of empty. But because of it, it feels jam-packed full of stuff. So inserts can be a really good way of uh, of adding perceived value because it feels like the box is more full. But that comes after they've purchased the game. But you do want people to feel good about the game that they purchased for sure. Um, if you have money to put towards art and you're a publisher, make sure that however much it takes, your front cover looks 
terrific. That is the best piece of advice I can give to you. Because the advice I was giving before applies to physical retail locations. But guess what? They don't get to see or feel if they're buying online. They don't get to see the box. They don't get to feel the weight of the box. They can't make the same sort of judgment calls. They just see price picture. So if you have a really good picture, then that's going to carry a lot of weight in the digital age. Um, Some really good examples would be something like Blood Rage or Scythe. Um, But it doesn't have to, to be, you know, those types of like really high quality art. If it has something like really funny or charming, like exploding kittens, like that's, that's a great cover art. Um, but you, even if it's at the expense of other, you know, uh, costs in your production, if you, if you're working with the budget, make sure your front cover looks good. People will forgive mediocre art on the cards, but they will not forgive a good, a bad front cover. Um, there's a lot of design principles I can talk about for making a good front cover. Um, but I could save a lot of time on this podcast because I, I do know that um, we only have so much time here by just saying hire a good artist and trust them. Don't think that you as the publisher are the best at picking up good art and stuff like that. Trust that the good artists that you're paying a good wage that you've seen their work are going to know how to frame it, are going to know how to use colors, are going to know about contrast. Um, the one thing I'd say is do the do the squint test, right? So if you see the picture uh, on the screen, you know, squint your eyes and see if it still looks good. Um, see if it looks good from a bit of a, dip, a distance because on Amazon, on our store, you know, if someone's looking at it on a computer monitor or, you know, God forbid, a phone, you're looking at like a one inch to one inch or like a couple inches to a couple inches of real estate for the front cover of your uh, board game box. And so it has to look good, even if it's really small, right? So I would say uh, those are the main things to be looking out for as a publisher wanting to succeed in the retail space. Um, The only other thing I'd like to add that you sort of hinted at earlier was, um, is that uh, you want to... uh, you said, you know, put, uh, make games that you can sort of put on the counter and let people sort of impulse buy. And the only thing I'll say with that is if you are clever, you can give us ways of, um, of selling your product. So the best example I have of this is pandemic legacy season one and two. Um, those ones, you know, you can put the boxes beside each other and they create a beautiful panorama that is you very easily telling me how to display your product. So that looks great. And if you have a, a game that looks great on the counter, I'm going to put it on the counter. If you have a game that looks like garbage, it's going to stay in the back and no one's ever going to buy it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, people talk about it all the time, don't judge a book by its cover, but they do. And they're going to. They're going to judge your game by its cover because that's going to tell them right off the bat what to expect. You know, is this a high quality game? Maybe it's got high quality art. That's a good, good sign, right? Versus the opposite. And so just being aware of that, uh, as a publisher. Now, when it comes to like demos and, and sending out demo copies or sending out retailer exclusives, what are some things a publisher can do to really build a good relationship, good partnership with retailers, you know, especially ones that maybe don't sell online? What are some things a publisher can do to kind of bridge the gap and, and make sure that they're they're building good relationships and, and really helping the store as much as the store is helping them? So I'm going to go against conventional wisdom here and say um, promos Promos aren't great because you know what happens when every game company gives me a promo for their game. Now I have a hundred thousand promos to keep track of and remember to give out when someone buys that game. 
And honestly, it's kind of just an inconvenience for me. Maybe other retailers will feel differently. You know, you should take this with a bit of a grain of salt. I've only worked at one board game store. I have worked at many other retail jobs in my life, but this is the only board game store I've worked at. Um, but I also, from our sales, it, it doesn't seem like the promos really drive sales too much. Um, and a lot of times people don't even know that they're getting one. You know, I would say the majority of the time when I hand someone a promo, they're like, huh, it comes with this? Oh, well, all right, cool. You know, so promos aren't, aren't really a, a good driver. Um, if this is coming off a Kickstarter campaign, you know, and you want to have like a retailer pledge, um, so also full disclosure, like I don't do the purchasing for Board Game Bliss, but I, I can speak a little bit to this. Uh, obviously have a discount. Obviously we want the games at the same time everybody else has. Obviously we want access to the same exclusives. Um, those are the, those are the, sort of the main things. There's a Facebook group, uh, retailers who back Kickstarters. Honestly, just hop on there and just say like, Hey, here's what we were thinking of offering. Is there more you'd want to, is there more you'd want to see there? Uh, my boss is on there. Lots of other retailers are on there and that would be a, a good resource for you if you want to get some feedback from the people who are doing the purchasing and seeing what they want to see. So that might be a, a better way to go about it for Kickstarter specifically. Um, in terms of support, uh, if you've got a competitive game, like a LCG, CCG, Minis game, you know, we're talking X-Wing, we're talking Legend of the Five Rings, uh, then I do want promos. Then I do want um, organized play support and stuff because those are the, uh, like, the really hardcore audience, right? Those are, like, the corest of the core. And they do care about pimping out their games with, um, you know, fancy promos and stuff like that. They, they're they the ones that uh, are going to show up to the organized play events more consistently. I've had, uh, you know, varying success with running organized play events in the store. I mean, again, this is one store, so, you know, don't take this as, like, gospel or anything like that. Um, but for me, I don't, I won't run every demo kit that comes by me. I won't run every event kit that comes by me. I'm going to pick and choose the ones that I think are good at it. Um, you know, we had a, a Blood Rage event that we ran that was pretty popular because Blood Rage is pretty popular. Um, but we did have some like newer people come out to that one. And like I said before, you know, with, with on-ramping and stuff like that, that's just not a fabulous game to introduce to people in that sort of a context. So and the problem is if you have an organized play event that gives out, you know, fancy promos and stuff, the fancy promos and stuff are what's going to drive more competitive players to come out to those events. But Promos aren't what's going to drive the casual audience to come out to those events. The casual audience are just going to say, oh, I have Tuesday off and I kind of wanted to play this Blood Rage game because people kept talking about it type of a thing, right? So it, it is tough, honestly, as, as, a, as a publisher to be able to support the, the games effectively. I would say that the best things you can do are just make sure that um, your game is demo friendly for us and... If you if you want to like build a relationship with like a, a local game store, like let's say you live near them, um, or if you're willing to travel, one really cool thing you can do to make yourself stand a little bit because most friendly local game stores aren't able to carry every game that comes out. You know, we we have frankly fantastic selection of board games, um, but e even we don't carry literally every single game. There's there's so many. What was it like? a dozen a day were coming out the last time I checked or more. Yeah. I mean, typically like around 800 come out at Gen Con alone. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's completely untenable. Right. 
and and like we're we're a, a you know a decent sized store so and we we specifically pride ourselves on our selection you know we might only get a couple copies in of of a particular game or even one copy of a game if we're not sure if it will sell but we try to have really really strong variety uh, but how how can a small friendly local game store possibly keep up with all that right so one way that you can help is by one not cold calling if you cold call me i will be zero percent interested um if you start off the interaction with like hey i have this game i would love to demo it here for you for free that's that that's where the money is so to me what you're saying is like i have so much faith in this product that i'm going to spend my time to market it for you essentially that's a great way to start things off and it's essentially a free event for me, right? Like I don't have to spend uh, the the manpower to run the event. I don't have to spend money on your game. And if your event goes well, great. I just got to see that your game does work and you are right. If it doesn't go well, you know, I might still be more interested because you took the time out to do that. Like that's the point in time where I'm going to start listening to your, your, your sales pitch on that. The other thing I'll say though, is if you're talking about uh, your game to uh, to a retailer, we hear about your games all the time. Like, you know, if we haven't heard of your game and you have to tell us about it, that's a bad place to start. You know, you should be trying to do your own marketing, stuff like that. Um, but don't try and tell me, you know, some people like to think they're very persuasive. Like, you're, you're not. You're really not. And we hear enough about this that we're very jaded to this. Um, but if you have, like, a really strong elevator pitch, great. But keep in mind, if we had to hear about your game from you, we didn't hear about it from marketing that, you know, there's just like a lot of buzz about your game, then why would I think I'm going to sell that game to other people unless it's me directly selling the game in, in store, right? Like if I play your game and I'm like, wow, your game is amazing. Why don't more people talk about this? Yeah, I can sell that game to more people in store. If they come in and ask for recommendation, I'll, I'll suggest your game. But if I'm mostly online, I'm not going to sell that game, right? Like if, if you had to come in and convince me about it, then are you going to do that for every single one of my customers? You know? Um, so it, it, it is really tough. Uh, and I wish I had like more inspiring advice for like uh, for the, for the small people who are just starting up and, you know, only have their first game that they just self published, but it is a tough industry to break into, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, you know, cream rises to the top, so to speak. Uh, I was actually reading about this kind of concept the other day, and it talked about how the first print run of Harry Potter, the very first book in the Harry Potter series, they only printed 1,000 copies because they didn't know. They didn't know if it would do very well. They obviously didn't think it would do super well because they only printed 1,000 copies. And it uh, it did okay. It, it did <laughs> really well. And so, you know, if your game is really good, then once it gets out there, and that's why we're talk- we talk so much about at the beginning of the show about onboarding and making the game really easy to pick up and play and get into people's hands and get into pe- onto people's shelves, you know, if it's really good, then I, I, I just feel like it's going to get out there. And so just, you know, make the best game you possibly can and then work your butt off, hope for the best. You're going to have to get lucky to a certain degree. That's just is what it is with anything business-wise. Uh, you're going to have to get, catch some breaks here and there if you're going to have a, a game or any piece of art that takes off. And so it is what it is. Now, when it comes to, like, consignment, I know a lot of game stores, you know, you can talk to them and they'll say, yeah, we'll sell your game on consignment. We'll work out, like, a little, you know, percentage, percentage split and things like that. Do, does your store do that? Is that something y'all uh, you're open to? That's not something that we do. Um, it, it is a much, much more appealing um, sell to a store. I, I would definitely say 
that would be a good place to start building the relationship, especially if you do the like the come in and I'll demo it and then we'll sell on consignment. Especially if you come off of Kickstarter and you have a warehouse full of games, it's like, oh, what am I going to do with all this stuff? It's just taking up space. That is a definitely a great place to start. For us, you know, we we just have so many games already that we don't have the space to, to do that type of thing. And again, I still don't feel very confident that uh, they would necessarily sell well, but you know, if I was if I operated like a non-online store, you know, if I was just a smaller thing, and you were local, you know, I, I'd probably be open to picking up a couple of copies and uh, and running through that. But it's not going to make you the kind of money you need to get to a second print run, and it's not going to be again unless you're the cream of the crop. But everybody thinks that they're the cream of the crop, right? You know, everybody likes to think that their idea is super good, and they and obviously you put in a lot of time and a lot of effort to your game. You you think it's good, and it may very well be good. Um, but good and marketable are very sadly two different things, right? Um, so I'd say that, that is a fine place to start, but it's not something that every store is going to look for. And it's not something I would look for either. Gotcha. Well, AJ, this has been awesome. And any other thoughts, Any anything else to be thinking about as a designer or a publisher when it comes to your game and trying to make sure it sells well in retail? One thing I'd just like to emphasize for designers is to design the game for your audience. So I just want to have a quick anecdote here. There was a, a party game I was designing. I was designing specifically in mind for uh, North Star Games because they design uh, the types of party games that uh, I actually like. Um, and they typically have a bit more thought that goes into them. And the game I was working on uh, was, the, the idea was basically someone's telling stories and um, everybody else is like betting on whether or not they think it's true. So it was supposed to sort of build off of their wits and wagers sort of system. And it tested quite well with my like designer friends and my hardcore design and my hardcore gaming friends, like right off the bat. I was like, great, this is the easiest design I've ever made. But then I play test it with my target audience with the, with mass market and more casual people. Cause that's what I was really hoping for. Like, yeah, it'd be great if some hardcore gamers buy this game, but I don't think it's the type of thing that would appeal to a hardcore gamer because it doesn't feel different enough from anything else that's out there. But for a mass market or casual gamer, this is the type of game that has, you know, a good amount of replayability, a lot of laughs, really easy to get into. And so I actually took out the, um, the, the betting feature entirely and it's gone through some other changes and it's uh, long-term. It's just better overall for that. But at the time it actively made the game worse for all the people that I had been playtesting with except for my target audience. So that's the type of thing that I think as a designer, you really want to make sure you do is seek out the people that you want to buy this game. Like you said before, you know, uh, think of that type of person in your head uh, of that, like the, the, you know, the, was the the form of, of uh, what you hope the, the customer to look like, find that person, play test with them and tune the game to their preferences. You know, you always hear conflicting feedback and your job is to is to go through the noise and to listen to what the people that you want to buy your game want. And the only other thing I have that I really want to talk about for um, for publishers is when you're designing your marketing, when you're designing your art, when you're designing your theme, make sure that you are appealing to the audience uh, that you want. So uh, a great example of this is there's a, a game called Food Truck Champion, which has really cute, cartoony, goofy art. And like, what do you think type of game that is? Like the first thought is, 
that's got to be like a fun little kids game, right? Or maybe a family weight game. It's actually a glory to Rome clone. Like who on earth thought that marketing that game in that way would make it successful. And I think that they were looking at the first uh, version of glory to Rome, the like cartoony sort of munchkin esque art. And we're trying to ape that and get the audience to notice it that way. But there's a reason why glory to Rome in the black box version switched over to really dry isometric shapes and like really like it almost looks like they designed some of the art in AutoCAD. It's so ugly. And no offense to them, but like it, it is. Um, but what that did was it meant like kids and families realized this is not a game for me. And they appealed to the more hardcore audience that they have. So I'd say like for designers, for publishers, really keep your audience in mind, make the game for them and not for other people. Because you know what? Some people bought Food Truck Champion because they thought it was a kid's game. And you might say, well, I got a sale. What, what what do I care if the game isn't for them or not? Well, now you just have someone who bought the game who's mad at the retailer potentially for, you know, I bought this game to play with my you know kid and it's really confusing and weird. You've got someone who's going to tell all their friends about this horrible, weird game to not buy. You know, did you really do yourself any favors there? as opposed to selling that same game to the person who actually wanted it in the first place and is going to tell the friends, Hey, this is like glory to Rome. It's great. You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, AJ, man, this is super informative, man. A lot, a lot to think about for sure, both as a designer and a publisher. And it just is what it is. If you want your game to sell well, then you just have to be aware of all of these different things. Well, real quick, before we sign off, you have a podcast that you and uh, Peter C. Hayward have been working on for a little bit now and uh, peter he's one of my favorite people in the gaming industry for sure but just in the world he's one of my favorite people and so uh, tell me a little bit about that and uh, where people can find it and listen to it yeah thanks for for the plug um so the podcast is called fun problems and as you say i post it with uh, peter c hayward who is also one of my favorite people in the world and um it's it's a lot of fun so the the main thing is we are talking about a lot of the things that you've talked about in your podcast uh, but I come at it from my retailer perspective, and Peter is not only a designer, but he's also a publisher. He uh, runs Jelly Bean Games, and uh, he does a lot of different um, things in that company, and he does a lot of different uh, roles in you know people's games from here and there. He's developed, he's done all these different roles. So I like to think that you know while we're covering a lot of territory that's already been covered very excellently, by the way. I think that we do have a unique perspective and, and we do have some points that people you know, haven't heard before and might not be thinking about, but should be. So if you want to check out the podcast, it's available, I think, everywhere you can find podcasts. It's available on Google and iTunes. So if you just search for Fun Problems and if you want to find us on Facebook or Twitter, it's at Fun Problems Pod. So yeah, if you're interested in what we have to say, obviously there's, there's just so much to these topics that we can't cover it all in an hour. So if you want to hear more of that, uh, then please check us out. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, AJ, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck at Board Game Bliss and uh, selling games at retail and the new podcast you guys are working on and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks so much. And I really appreciate you having me. This is a great podcast and uh, it's really exciting for me to be able to be on here and talk with you. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. 
Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?